0: Okay, let's look at God's Word. Can we do that? That's really what we're here to do. That's more important than any of these announcements. I want to read back over verses 25 through 32, the end of chapter 4 here, just quickly together. So I would invite you to turn your eyes to the screen or look at your own copy of God's Word. And I want you to really hone in on, try to think this way, because I want you to be critical about this. What, in general, what category is Paul trying to kind of invest into the lives of initially the church in Ephesus, but you and I, by extension. What does he want? What category would we say he's really championing? Think about that. We're going to read it, and then I'm going to tell you what I think. Verse 25. Paul says, therefore, which means in light of everything else he's written so far, so if you don't know what that means, maybe this afternoon go home and read Ephesians 1 uh, through 4, the first four chapters. Paul says, if that's true, therefore, having put away falsehood. That's critical. Don't miss that. If that's the case, then let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. So Paul's talking about Christians interacting with Christians here. He says, be angry. Like, you're going to get on each other's nerves, all right? Paul knows that. He lives in the same world that you do. But don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil, to God's enemy who wants to divide you. That's what's implied there. Let the thief, has he, if he'd been a thief in the past, Paul must be thinking of at least one person he's met in the church in Ephesus probably, right? He's thinking of that one convert who used to steal and now he's a part of the church and he's trying not to steal, but he loves to steal, so it's really hard not to steal anymore. Paul says, let him no longer steal, but instead do this. And I love this because this is such our new discipleship paradigm, isn't it? Paul not just telling us what to take away. He's like, here's what your life should be full of instead. Here's how positive discipleship happens. He says, but instead, let him labor. Doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share, to share instead of to steal, with anybody who's in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only talk such as is good for building each other up. As fits the occasion that's appropriate so that it may give grace to those who hear. Language that extends mercy into the life of another person. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, the spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness... And wrath and anger, clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I think Paul's theme is holiness. That's how I would categorize all these things he's describing. He's explaining to you and I, if we know what the word holy means, which in all of the Bible it's implying being set apart, that God's drawn a dividing line and moved certain people into a new category. That's you and I. We're a new creation in Christ, following hard after him to live his lifestyle. That's what Paul is driving at. Now, when you hear the word holiness, I doubt that a lot of the things on this list are what immediately come to mind for you. I'm 31 years old, I'm a sort of an older millennial, if you will, uh, and so having grown up in youth group culture, having grown up in a church, lots of things come to my mind when I hear holiness. Uh, you may be similar to me, maybe you think of uh, a choir dressed all in white robes, or you think of old hymns sung from a dusty old hymn book, or maybe a hymn book that's not dusty, because it gets used every week, right? Or uh, if you're the age of my parents, you might think of a, a pile of classic rock 8-track tapes, in the backyard burning, right? Because you're a Christian now, and you're not gonna listen to that garbage anymore. That was big in the 70s and the 80s. Maybe you think of a purity ring, or maybe you think of internet filters on your laptop or your cell phone, or maybe you think of canceling an HBO subscription or making a decision not to consume certain kinds or standards of media. It can be lots of different things for you and I. I think for people who live today like we do, late modern apprentices of Jesus like you and I, Holiness sometimes is falsely equated with being a prude, being stuck up a little bit. You giggled because you agree, right? You do. You know that. The most extreme version of holiness in your mind is somebody who you probably feel like has nothing in common with you. And yet, Paul seems to assume that the culture of a local church, that if unity is really something to be grasped and can actually be achieved here, that it has to do with the way that we live. Our actual ethics come into play on whether or not we can unify. Holiness in practice is only holiness if it actually moves your lifestyle closer to the lifestyle of Jesus. You see, Jesus is the standard for what the word holy means, and so if what I call holiness doesn't lead me closer to him, it's not really holiness. It doesn't matter how important or religious I think it may be. If it doesn't change me or lead me to change or give me the chance to change to be like Christ, it's not really serving him and it's not really serving his kingdom. Oftentimes, holiness comes to you and I in the form of standards or commands as written in the scriptures in the Bible. But unfortunately, when we encounter holiness in the Scripture or when we encounter lived-out standards of purity or even careful living on the part of other Christians, we tend to shy away a little bit. Very few, if any, of us modern believers, I'm not talking about just this local church, I'm talking about Christians in general, very few of us are hungry or thirsty for holiness. We're willing to accept it. If a pastor like me gets on a stage and for 40 minutes kind of s- tries to shepherd you into a new category of thinking, we're open to that. We might accept some of those principles. But few of us wake up in the morning and go, God, what can I do to purify my life? What would it look like? What would it take for me to do that? We fear it. We fear it because it feels fanatical. We fear it because oftentimes we don't live with that much zeal. We're pretty sarcastic and cynical, kind of as a generation, people my age and younger. But I think we mostly fear it because we don't know how to navigate it because we haven't seen it done terribly well. And here's what I'll tell you, apprentice of Jesus. The model for your holiness, because he's the standard for your holiness, is your rabbi. Jesus of Nazareth, his life is a life of holiness. And what can he do that we're often afraid of? He spends an immense amount of time with sinners, doesn't he? He doesn't seem to shy away from that at all. He has sharp language for the religious elite around him who have made their faith about what they do instead of who they are. So there's room for that for us as well. He seems holistically dedicated to love with God the Father, and he seems far more interested in love being the birthplace of obedience than obedience being the birthplace of love because I think he knows it doesn't work that way. So we can learn from him and from his model what it actually looks like to live set apart, and that's all that Paul is trying to do. So when you read Paul anywhere in the Bible, don't interpret him as having put additional standards onto the life of a Jesus follower. He is simply interpreting the ethics of what it means to actually do what Jesus actually said. So obedience to Jesus, what we would call practicing the way of Jesus, this is the motivation the Apostle Paul has, that he's trying to give you an eye. And then he is, thankfully, helpfully building that out for us in a list of do's and don'ts. If you'll just take a second and look back at verse 25, I think it's the key to understanding the end of chapter four and the first two verses of chapter five. Paul says this, therefore, having put away falsehood. That's the key. Having put away falsehood. That's the linchpin in all of us. It's the fulcrum of the whole idea. Paul has been working his way uphill all the way until he hits Ephesians four, at which point, you heard Josh Mangum lay it out for you last week, Paul says it all comes down to who you are. Are you the old, individualized self that's all about you and your kingdom? Or have you put on Christ and become new? If you have, there we are at the pinnacle of the whole book. Paul says, therefore, and we're coming downhill on the backside. Everything else that he's going to tell us today is predicated on the idea that we know Jesus. And to take Matthew 7 seriously, that Jesus knows us. So... Don't misunderstand what we're about to read as the steps you need to take to get to heaven. That's not what this is. These are the steps you take after you've made contact with heaven. In Jesus, where heaven met earth, where all of man and all of God were finally joined in a way that sin had made impossible prior to that. In Jesus, who resisted the devil in a way that you and I never can and never will without his help. Now we're coming downhill into the therefore. So what does that mean? What is the falsehood that's so key for us to have gotten rid of? Paul's taking for granted that you and I have followed the previous verses, verses 17 through 24, and we've abandoned, if I can paraphrase here, things like futile thinking, hard-heartedness, callousness in our inner being, that sense of being burned so bad that you can't care anymore, Sensuality, which is rampant in our culture, if we're not willing to go into full-blown sexuality, we just hint at sex in everything, to sell cars and cigarettes and body spray and football tickets and website domains and everything you can think of. We are immensely immersed in sensuality, naturally on our own, greedy to do wrong and to get away with it. That's the old self. What Paul's describing is that falsehood is not just a set of decisions, it's not just a mindset, it's a lifestyle. When you believe falsely, you live falsely. And when you live falsely, you have to keep living falsely because if you start admitting that you're wrong, your little world that you've been kind of shadow dancing your way through begins to fall apart. You can't afford to do it. I don't know if you guys watched VeggieTales when you were a kid. If you didn't, just ignore me for the next two minutes. I don't know a lot about VeggieTales. I didn't watch a ton of them. We only owned like three VHS tapes when I was a kid. One of them was the VeggieTales about lying where Larry the Cucumber turns into a superhero with plungers on the side of his head, and there's a lie, and the lie starts little, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until at the end of the episode, a giant donut rolls through town and crushes all the buildings. It really goes that far. Okay, here's the principle that I took away from that. I don't know any Bible verses because of that episode, but I remember that when you tell a lie, you have to tell more lies to cover your lies. That's a lifestyle of falsehood. When you begin to build the foundation of your identity on things that are not true, your life doesn't get better. This is why Christians stand, hopefully graciously and with kindness, opposed to the modern sexual ethic. We don't believe that people ought not find their identity in their sexuality because we think we're better than them. We believe that because we tried to find our identity in all kinds of other alities in our political affiliation, in our skin color, in the demographic that we occupy, how much success we can have, how much money we make. Just because we didn't dip our toe in homosexuality or bisexuality or whatever else doesn't mean we can't relate to a person who has. When we plead with a person who finds their identity and their sexuality, it is not because we're looking down on them and we want them to just boost our numbers and join our church. We are pleading with people who are just like us, who have also been living a lifestyle of falsehood. And I'll tell you, we're at the very beginning of probably a 20 to 30 year process of this thing falling apart. The people who have bought this lie, it is not serving them well. Many of them are taking their own lives because they can't figure out how to backpedal out of this identity that they built their life on. We have to be present, but we can't be if we don't understand what Paul is saying. A lifestyle of falsehood, it's real, it's rampant. It's not out there and for them, it's in us, and Jesus is the only solution. Apprentices of Jesus make a choice. We trade our lifestyle of falsehood for a lifestyle of truth. This is why the very next command from Paul is that we ought to speak the truth with our neighbors because we're members of one another. Do you know what Paul knows about you and I? We're flighty. We're skittish. We're nervous. We don't really tell the truth a lot because we know that our opinions aren't going to be that helpful probably or they're going to be received poorly or we're going to hurt people's feelings. Paul is saying stop with the lying to make everybody feel good all the time. Tell each other the truth because you care. Tell each other the truth not to be angry, not to be right, not to be better, because you have love in your heart for the other person. That's why you ought to speak the truth to them. To use an analogy here, it may help you with the picture, truth is like the trunk of a tree. The new self in Christ is is this, this life of truth, of being honest, of telling what's really going on, whether it's good, whether it's bad, not glorifying in what's wrong, but just telling the truth, not hiding it, not changing it, not twisting it. And then the rest of the verses that we're about to read, these are simply the branches that grow off of the tree of truth. If we live a lifestyle of truth, the things that Paul is about to ask us to do should be pretty obvious. Now they're not, that's why he has to write it into our Bibles, but I want to say it to you like this, maybe that wasn't clear, that analogy. The lifestyle of falsehood, what Paul called the old self last week, it's a lifestyle of taking. So I can just summarize all of that falsehood, all of that missing identity, it essentially boils down to if you live that way, you walk through your life looking for what you can get. You are willing to take. This is why, in many ways, the modern idea of how we would reverse oppression is itself tainted by the world, because all it does is turn victims into new oppressors. Only Jesus can actually set people on equal footing, and he can only do that by us being willing to not live a lifestyle of taking. Taking, for the quote-unquote right reasons, is still wrong. Do you know that? Do you know that for Christians, we are not ends justify the means people? We are ends and means go together and follow the model of Christ. We do what he does the way that he did it. He's our rabbi. He's not just a good idea. He's not just a political figure. He's not just God in human flesh. He is himself the person who has said to each of us, follow me and do what I do and do it the way that I've done it. Without him, the lifestyle of falsehood is one of taking. The old self takes. Opposed to that is the new self, which is essentially a lifestyle of giving. That's what we're about to read through. Paul's going to challenge all kinds of versions of taking in our lives, and then at the end he's going to hold up a lifestyle of giving as the lifestyle of Christ. The new self gives. The old self tears down, the new self builds up. The old self damages, the new self heals. The old self makes war on its enemies, and the new self somehow brings peace to the world same Jesus who said that he brought a sword said that he also came to bring peace into the lives of men and women and to heal what had been wrong. So local churches, if we want to be unified, we have to be made up of people who have made that choice, who've exchanged a lifestyle of falsehood, a lifestyle of taking, for a lifestyle of truth, a lifestyle of giving. The local church must be made up of people who have chosen not to take and have chosen instead to give. So with those two categories in mind, giving and taking, look back at verse 28 with me if you would. Paul says this. This should be the most obvious verse that we read today. He says, let the thief no longer steal. So that's taking. That's easy. But rather let him labor. Let him do honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share, something to give with anyone in need. Paul is saying your new lifestyle leads you to be a person who gives with your hands, not a person who takes with your hands. Work to make something and then once you see the fruit of your labor, you'll be ready to give. You've You feel good about that, right? Your old self used to feel good about taking, oftentimes even taking without asking. There's a sense of conquest and dominance that we appreciate and enjoy when we're living a lifestyle of falsehood. The wickedness in us, the darkness in us, likes being bigger and stronger and faster and able to do what we want without having to say please or I'm sorry afterwards. That's because when we're living a life of falsehood, we're looking for something. There's something that we don't have that we think we need. That's why we live a life of taking, is we're always running our hands through the sand to see if that gold that we can't find is buried on this hill. The thing we're looking for is Christ. Once we have him, we don't have to take anything else. We have something now that we can give away that overflows. This is why the analogies that Jesus uses in the New Testament to explain himself deal with abundance. The bread of life that never runs out, so you're not hungry anymore. The water of life that flows forever, so you're never thirsty anymore. These are ideas built on the idea that when you become connected to Christ, something is planted in you that pours out, that flows out, that gives away. That's a total lifestyle dynamic change from how most of us walk through the world. The new self is not about just being able to give, but according to what Paul said here, it's about being prepared to be able to give, planning to give, living a lifestyle, working in a way where you have a resource to give. The new self understands that how we do things is as important as the things themselves. Then verse 29, Paul says, "Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear." Paul is saying, "Give with your mouth, don't take with your mouth." So how do we take with our mouths? What does that look like with our words? That's what Paul means when he says corrupting talk. Corrupting talk is not just talk that corrupts our ideas or embarrasses people at our nice social function. Corrupting talk actually erodes other people. It breaks down the humanity of the people that we speak about or toward. It compromises the integrity of the other. It takes. It doesn't take like the hands take physically. It takes in a way that actually leaves holes behind. So I'll just give you three quick examples here that I think may allow you to grasp this if it's not clear for you yet. The first kind of talk that takes is gossip. Gossip is talk that takes. Gossip takes away reputation. Gossip removes the benefit of the doubt from another person, and you know that it does. If you've been present for gossip and you've bought into that gossip, the next time you see the person that everybody was talking about behind their back, you don't trust them like you used to. You wonder if that's right. Could that really be true? Did that person really do and say those things? No, you weren't there, and no, the person who told you didn't seem interested in the facts, but it has an effect on you. You can't become immune to hearing something about somebody. So we have to avoid that. We cannot be people who choose to give or take that gossip. Slander is talk that takes. Slander takes away the truth. Slander tells a story that is more sensational and more compelling than the facts would be. And mockery. Mockery is talk that takes. Mockery takes away dignity, it removes respect, and it dehumanizes its victim. It turns weaknesses and mistakes, which are normal parts of human existence, into shame. Shame that sticks. Shame like a cloud that follows you everywhere you are because somebody has been willing not only to acknowledge what you did wrong, but to rub your face in it. That's talk that takes. The Apostle Paul seems to think that if you and I really want to be unified in this local church in 2022, we need to be done with those three categories of communication. So I'll just say to you, as an elder here, please stop. If you have found comfort in gossip, if you have found comfort in warping and twisting prayer circles and prayer requests into speaking about people, things that they didn't want you to share, please don't do that ever again. There's never a circumstance where that's helpful or necessary. Jesus is already interceding for that person, the Spirit of God is interceding for them, and you can too. That's enough. If you've been willing to slander other people, even if they are your political or ideological enemies, stop it. Jesus only ever spoke a harsh word against the Pharisees when he was face to face with them and he told them the truth about themselves. He didn't go behind their backs. He didn't campaign around the city to tear them down. They felt like he was because they were immature and they couldn't handle it, but his hands were clean. Let's follow his example. And if you have been willing to mock another person, even this week, maybe you're so pro-Roe v. Wade getting overturned or so against Roe v. Wade getting overturned that mockery has come off your lips. That is not the way of Jesus. God loves you, there's grace for you to be forgiven. I'm not here to attack you, but if this church is ever going to be unified, we cannot speak to each other this way. If we're willing to do that, the Apostle Paul has said other places in Scripture that we ought to watch our backs because we will devour each other. You have the capacity to eat the people around you alive, to erode them to the point that they want nothing to do with Christ or his church. I've seen it happen. So don't take that too heavy. I love you. But this is serious. These are not recommendations or suggestions or ideas that might be nice in heaven. This is the way of Jesus today for us. How do you give with your words? If you're not supposed to take with your words, how do you live a lifestyle of giving with your mouth? It's as simple as telling the truth and then living in the tension that that truth creates. It's messier. It might feel harder at first, but it's better for you and the people around you. It is the way of Jesus. We speak the truth because we love who we are speaking to. So the first step for you, if you struggle with this, if you are a gossiping, slandering mocker, which some of us are, let's be honest, the first step is to pray that God would grow your own capacity to love. Because you have a heart problem. God can fix those. He's the best at it. You'll never fix it on your own. You certainly won't white-knuckle your way through this one. Ask him to fix your capacity to love. And what he'll probably then say to you is, great, I will do that. Here are the steps for you to take. You need to forgive some people that you're bitter against. And you need to reapproach some people who you are far from right now by choice. Look at verse 30. Paul says not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God because the Spirit is by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. The Spirit is supposed to seal what's coming for us, not be a leash to hold you back from going back to where you were before you found Jesus. Yet we often treat him that way. We treat the Spirit of God like he's just holy handcuffs. Like, we'd really love to go back and sin some more and do all the junk we used to do that destroyed our lives and the lives of the people around us, but the Spirit just won't let me. I just had that inkling. What that tells me is there's no discipline in your life at all. You're doing nothing to shape your own heart and mind toward the character of Christ. So get started. Don't grieve the Spirit, pray. Don't grieve the Spirit, know God's word. Memorize it, listen to it, sing it, pray it. Whatever you need to do, you find your medium, but begin to absorb these things. Get alone with God, pray to him daily. Pour out your heart to him. The things that are driving you back to that lifestyle of taking are feelings of being not enough or having not enough. It's your inability to know and understand God's grace that's driving you back to that lifestyle of taking. So get to know his grace. Let the bread that never runs out and the water that never ceases meet your needs. He's very good at it. For all of human history, he has healed people who have the same wickedness inside of themselves as you. Now, we'll land the plane here in verses 31 and 32 for today, and this is a great opportunity to self-evaluate. So I'm going to throw eight quick ideas at you. As I do, I'm going to ask some questions. I want you to know that I'm offering these questions as a self-evaluative tool. This is not me critiquing you. I'm not thinking of anybody specifically. I'm actually going to look down most of the time I say this so you don't feel like I'm picking on you. Uh, But I want to look at verse 31. There's five things Paul says to be done with. In verse 32, there's three things he offers to us that we ought to pick up and carry with us And then we'll be done this morning. Look at verse 31. Paul says, let all bitterness, let wrath and anger, let clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. This is the lifestyle of taking. So let's start with bitterness. Bitterness is resentment that gets communicated through harshness. So when a person becomes bitter, they begin to resent you. And the longer they resent you, the less nice that they are to you. Because they resent you. And we're not nice to people that we resent. We start to hate them eventually. Paul doesn't go that far. He's hoping probably that we can cut things off before it births hatred within us. But I would just ask you, do you resent anybody at this church? If you do and you haven't said that yet, now's the time. It will not get any easier. And the question I always ask myself when I don't want to have a hard conversation is, do I want to die at 90 years old, 60 years from now, knowing that I never had this conversation? It's not going to get any easier. I can wait till next week. Maybe there's a good reason to wait a few days and pray and be patient. But if there's a thing you need to say to somebody because resentment's built up in you, now is the time. And then if you don't know what harsh language looks like, do you ever verbally attack anybody at this church? Even if it just happens in your household or your home, a friend, a leader, your spouse, your children, the Apostle Paul says, let's be done with that. There are better ways to speak to one another. Now, when I think of wrath and anger, I think they really go together and they birth what I would call rage. Rage to me is when wrath is expressed through anger. And this oftentimes looks like outbursts of passion in our lives. So I would ask you think of especially your online presence. Are you wise? Are you welcoming? Are you considerate? Are you careful? Do you speak about broad categories of people that you don't agree with as being degenerates or as if they're less than you in some way? And what about wrath? Do you take pleasure when your enemies fall? This is not a Christ like thing. We don't celebrate the downfall of our enemies. We believe that each of them are created in God's image and are eternal and have a destiny ahead of them. And we pray vigilantly that God would not only defeat their wrong ideas, but that he would conquer their hearts and make them new, just like he made you and I new. We were God's enemies before, too. Don't forget that. Ask yourself, has anger made its home in your heart? Is it normal? Is it natural? Is it easy for you to fly off the handle? Are you living with a hair trigger? Do you speak violently? Clamor, to me, is the sound of mass exaggeration and unfiltered reaction. It's outcries among us as a body. Is it typical for you or your friends to point out the next big issue that's coming down the cultural pipeline and then freak out about it? Have you considered that you may have run out of relational equity and are actually damaging your relationships with your over the top rhetoric and opinions? You can only cry wolf so many times before you become the person who cries wolf. This is not the way to unity. Unity is to tell the truth. If you're afraid of a thing that's coming, say that. But don't feel that you have to justify your fear and hide it by making the thing you're afraid of look more legitimate. That would be like being afraid of the monster under your bed, and then when your parents come in to check and see if it's there, it's you dressed up as the monster under your bed. Because you have to make it real, otherwise you're afraid of what you'll look like. Just own the fear. Everybody's afraid. All right? Even Jesus Christ, the night before his death, grappled with what was coming the next day. A little bit. Okay? So you have a great high priest who understands your weakness. Be honest. Tell the truth, let other people support and help you instead of feeling the need to manipulate them to agree with the thing you're afraid of. And are you reactionary? Who are you when your life goes off the rails? Emotions are real, I think they're good, they're a great indicator of what's going on, but are they leading your decisions or as all of you brought under the submission of Christ leading your decisions? Are you including other people? Are you praying? Can you control yourself? Slander happens, number four, when we lie about an enemy in order to gain an advantage over them. Very tempting to do. Because how would anybody know, right? Will you speak something? Are you willing to say a thing that is not 100% true as long as it benefits you to do so? We ought not live that way. Maybe even it's just hyperbole. It's just an exaggeration about what somebody did or really how bad it was to try to drive the point home. Are you willing to do that? What about the kinds of people that you fight with? Are you concerned with maintaining the dignity of the people that you oppose? Do you have the capacity to do that? Because the news... And politics and whoever else is discipling you when you're not in here, they don't care. They would say as long as somebody's your enemy, they have no dignity. They're not even a human anymore. Man, just hit them with the bus, cream them, run them over, make them just a spot on the concrete of the road of your life and move on. And that is not the way of Jesus. Jesus remains concerned with the dignity of his ideological opponents the entire time that he interacts with them. And then malice. Malice we ought to be done with. Malice is spite built up over a long time that is poised to attack. So, is passive aggression in your arsenal? Because that's how spite works its way out. Spite rarely looks like a direct attack, it looks more like sort of under the surface torpedoes meant to slowly destabilize you and wear you down so that you hurt too. And are you poised to attack? Are you so sensitive that you respond disproportionately to small slights and offenses? What is your tone like when you are upset? Do you want to hurt the people who hurt you? If we're honest, we're all somewhere on this scale, okay? I'm not talking to three or four of us and the rest of us have this figured out. We're human beings. We are riddled with bad ideas and bad habits. This is why it takes a new way of life to be any different. We can't simply sprinkle a little Jesus, pull him out of the cabinet. All right, Jesus, fix my malice, please. I'm gonna leave it in there, but maybe you can just make it more Jesus-y. I don't know how that works, but I trust you. It's not gonna happen. You gotta dump the pot and there's a new life. That's what Christ says. You must be born a second time, a starting over completely. But when that happens, when you do that, you gain the capacity by the Spirit of God to go a different way. So believe that. Believe that if we live this way, we can be different. We can build a thing in this church that the world can't offer us and it can't offer itself. It will be the most attractive and winsome thing that you could possibly ever demonstrate to a person who doesn't want to know Jesus yet. Is his body. That's what he said. He said, how will they know your love for one another? That's what Paul's driving at. Let's look at verse 32, the three things we ought to add. He says, Be kind to one another, be tender hearted, and be forgiving of one another. Here's your example, as God in Christ forgave you. I would define kindness as gentle behavior that is both useful, so that's important. Sometimes we think we're being kind, but we're just running our mouth to avoid conflict. That's not really kindness. Kindness is useful, but it's also pleasant. It's easy to receive kindness well. So, do you look for the least personally damaging way to speak the truth to someone else? Or do you just shoot from the hip? I don't know, it was the truth. Truth at any cost. Sorry, it hurt. It's the truth. Uh, That's not how Jesus rolled. Jesus was careful. He was critical. He was prepared. He would fast. He would pray before any large conversation that he had. When he did it, he came ready. He was connected to the Spirit. Is it useful? Are you willing to hold your tongue when you only have opinions to offer? And will you wait quietly while everyone around you runs their mouth (laughs) without jumping in until you have something constructive to say? And do you add peace? Do you add clarity? Do you add warmth to the lives of the people that you interact with? Again, I think it helps to think about who you are online. We give ourselves a totally different set of expectations when we interact in the digital space. Tenderheartedness is an inner state of merciful compassion. So are you merciful? When someone has truly objectively wronged you, do you ever let that person get away with it? Or do you have to speak up every single time? Are you compassionate? Can you relate to people you don't like? Or is everyone across the aisle from you always an idiot all the time from your perspective? Do you give your friends the freedom to be significantly different from you? Or would that somehow damage your relationship if they were honest and told you that they disagree? Finally, forgiveness Forgiveness is erasing the inner record of wrong and then showing favor to our fellow apprentices. And I just want to make a caveat here, a disclaimer to you. Paul is talking believer to believer. He is talking about how we forgive other apprentices of Jesus who are doing their best within their willpower and by the power of the Spirit of God to follow hard after Christ. He is not talking about any old person who walks off the street and abuses you, damages your life, steals from you, takes advantage of you. That general openness of life is something we need to be careful with. Because there are people who will repeat offend. They will go as far with us as we will let them go. And that is not the category of person that Paul is talking about. He is talking about people who are genuinely repentant. Are we willing to forgive where genuine repentance is present? Can you let go of wrongdoing when you receive an honest apology? And will you treat that person favorably? Will you give them advantages despite the memory that you may live with for the rest of your life of how they wronged you in the past? That's forgiveness. So then Paul says in verses 1 and 2 of Ephesians 5, he says, be imitators of God. That's the summary. That's all Jesus ever said, right? He said, teach everybody everything I taught you. Baptize them in my name and make them disciples. That's all Paul is saying. He's saying, be a disciple. Be an apprentice. Be a talmudim of the rabbi Jesus, an imitator of God himself as beloved children of his. May this process of letting go of these five ways of taking and embracing these three ways of giving, may it be joyful for you, May you love every minute of it. May you rejoice as you see your life changed. May you celebrate this change in other people's lives. That's part of the unifying process, is celebrating the wins together. Walk in love as Christ loved us and as as he gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So church, unity is possible, but only if we all take on a lifestyle of giving, a new self built on truth, built in truth. That's the kind of life that imitates God. That's the kind of life that goes, pardon me, the way of Jesus. If we live lives of giving, then we live lives of Christlikeness, lives of holiness, lives of unifying love for God and for one another. But not just ideals, actual lived obedience. And not acting loving, but becoming loving. Being transformed into love. This is the objective teaching, of practice, of community, of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and of the concrete reality of the present kingdom of God. That's all the Apostle Paul is describing to you here.